This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Hello, I'm Glenda Wheeler. Welcome to episode 267, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. The clock is ticking. October 11th is the deadline for written comment on the environmental impact statement regarding the Mammoth 300-plus wind turbine project for the Port-au-Port Peninsula and Codroy Valley. World Energy GH2 has given us an EI document massive enough in size to fit the scale of its project. 4,000 pages of text, tables, and appendices. Released in August, with a due date for public comment of just a few short weeks. It seems to be part of a shock and awe strategy. Don't even bother with objecting. Resistance is futile. But people are plowing through, making notes, doing their own research. They are determined to have their say. We spoke to one resident of the port port Peninsula who has been combing through the document. Patrick Park Tai tells us what he's found and offers some tips for those thinking of putting in their own written comment. So, Patrick, you're working your way through a 4,000-page environmental impact submission. How's that going? It's overwhelming, um, and I don't think there's there's a better way to put it than that. It is it is a lot of text. It is a lot of material. It's a lot of uh, data, um, and it's and it's difficult to wade through. There's there's a lot of um, technical materials in there. There's there's a lot of you know redundant material in there. Um, and it's, it is, it's a lot to, to work through. It's not, uh, I think it's fair to say, it's not a reader friendly document in the way that it's, uh, presented, uh, as you say, there's repetition, the appendices come before the text and, uh, you can get bogged down, uh, in stuff that, um, is not, uh, perhaps the most important stuff. Yeah. And there is, there is plenty of that. And I think even, even just the sheer volume of it, of, of the document itself, um, and the fact that GH2 has made, you know, paper copies available in a few select locations, but otherwise, um, you know, you need to be able to download it. Um, I can't imagine someone, you know, trying to lug around a paper copy of, of 4,000 pages and navigate their way through that. And even with technology and, and being able to open this on a computer, it's still difficult to navigate. But you have been uh, persistent and you've done... Um a review of some sections, and I wonder if you could tell us some of the significant things that you've seen and that people should be aware of. Well, like you said, I mean, there's there's a really daunting um, number of sections to this document and, and appendices, as you've mentioned. Um, you know, for folks approaching this for the first time, I think the easiest thing to do would be start at the beginning, which is sort of the introduction. And um, you know, quite frankly, that's an area where um, I sort of focused before I got into the, the deeper layers of things. But a lot of the, I guess, red flags um, are right there in, in the very first section. So, 
Um, you know, for example, I was I was very very curious about the expertise behind this project and and who was involved. And I think very early on, you see that uh, the main proponents of this this project are you know John Risley and his CFFI Ventures, Brandon Paddock. Um, there's a Horizon Atlantic Capital Group, and then GH2 Holdings as well. And then, of course, we know just in the last few months, SK EcoPlant out of South Korea has come on board. Um, but when you look at these individuals or these, these partners that are involved, uh, none of them have any direct experience working with wind turbines and uh, hydrogen project, uh, production. You know, I think the, the South Koreans are probably the first on board with actual relevant expertise. So right off, to, right off the bat, it makes me nervous. And to me, it's sort of a reflection of the competitive process that this, that this whole thing has been so far, or really the lack of competition. So um, for me, when we've had other companies come in, like Francesco out of, uh, I believe it's Australia, you know, they've been in this industry for a while. John Risley and company have not. And, you know, when they've just been registered for what, a little over two years now, um, it certainly gives me concerns. That's from the get-go. And then, of course, um, there's a number of other issues in here that they spell out that, uh, yeah, are also pretty significant red, red flags. In terms of the environmental uh, aspects, um, in my limited uh, reading, I get the sense that... Um, you know, you get these tidbits that are are plopped in uh, every now and then, and they don't really stand out on unless you're reading uh, closely. What what have you come across in in that regard? Well, there's 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 a lot, um, and I think they've you know obviously this is considered an environmental impact statement, but there's a lot thrown in here, and some of it is about the business case, you know, for the project it, itself. Uh, which I find incredibly, you know, questionable at best. Um, but there's things about, you know, um, certainly the Indigenous piece and, and its role in this. But just for example, where they've got a section called uh, construction activities, they've got a table that's called key metrics associated with the construction of the project. And this is basically where they give um, what they're calling high level metrics um, for what they expect to happen with this project. So it's it's things like the total length of roads that they're anticipating uh, that they're going to need. So for that, they put an estimate of 350 kilometers. Now, this is uh, split between the Port-a-Port and the Cadre Wind Farm um, projects. But the numbers are still, you know, some of these are absolutely staggering to me. So, you know, for example, they talk about common excavation. So I'm assuming what they need to dig up. Um, and they talk about three and a half million uh, cubic meters uh, of material that they've got to move. They talk about bulk emulsion explosives. Um, and they've got something here of uh, 7 million kilograms of those explosives, which I think works out to about 15 million pounds. Um, you know, for a project that's, that's you know, green, uh, they talk about burning through 40 million liters of diesel fuel. Um, and, you know, and that's just for the construction, I believe, of, of the project. So that's, that's not, you know, when we get into the point where they're actually in production um, and they're putting ammonia on ships uh, powered by diesel to cross the Atlantic to European markets. So there's, there's so many things in here that um, immediately make me, make me nervous. And especially when people are saying that, um, you know, 350 kilometers of roads, 
15 million pounds of explosives, you know, there's no real uh, impacts that are going to be felt on the on the mm. environment or the landscape. So if we could just pause there, if you're, um, I mean, there's hardly anyone in that part of the peninsula and in the Kadroy Valley, he was not going to be touched by more than 300 uh, wind turbines. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, digging, blasting, trucks, activity. So it's um, it's hard to uh, to imagine that um, that anyone in the general vicinity of these more than 300 wind turbines will not feel the the impact. Oh, it's it's I mean, it's impossible. Um, and and I, I, I feel, you know, the way it's being presented and portrayed is is that, you know, it's just it's just a, a regular kind of construction process here. And once we get through that, you know, we're we're into production, we're into, you know, great jobs and, and helping the environment. And what people are forgetting is that this is going to be a very rushed, frenzied um, time of activity because, again, they're apparently, you know, up against the clock. Um, and so everything's got to get pushed through. It's got to get done right away. Um, so we can be expecting that this is this is going to be happening around the clock for months, if not years, before it seven days a week. Probably they'll probably have some expedited uh, schedule to get finished. And they're, and they're going to have to because again, we know the reality of these areas. We live here, and the the weather is not going to be on their side. Um, I know Sean Leaf was on the radio recently saying that you know they're anticipating the decision on the EIS at the end of October and November first. They're ready to to roll. Hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's terrifying. Um, and again, it goes back to this rush, 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 you know, we need to be competitive in, in my view, just sort of looking at the world in general right now and where this hydrogen and, and wind energy, um, industry is headed. Everything is very much up in the air right now. And there seem to be changes, um, company, countries like Germany are changing their policies and their expectations almost daily. So, you know, rush, rush, rush. In many ways, there's, there's other established players in this space. They've been there for a while. They know the business. They've got the equipment online. They've got the expertise they need. So the race that Mr. Risley is trying to win, in my mind, it's over anyway. Mm. We're, we're already a bit late to the game here. So, you know, if that's the case, then, then why are we going through this entire, you know, exercise? Yes. Um, and that's something else that I, that I question. Because obviously there's, if I was living in Europe right now and I was facing a cold winter, um, you know, the prospect of a little place called Newfoundland producing, you know, any sort of uh, fuel to keep me warm, um, I'd be looking to my immediate neighbors. I'd be looking to other people in Europe for, for, those, uh, for those essentials. Uh, we often uh, think of cumulative uh, impact of uh of these big projects, how one effect sort of um, reinforces another effect. Um, what uh, what else do you see in there to give us a, a sort of total picture of what the ultimate impact of this project? Well, that's 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 an interesting you know concept of its own. The whole idea of cumulative effects, um, and I know right now uh, Chief Byron Alexander is is something that he's been very interested in for quite some time and, and he's certainly been advocating you know loudly now uh, to get something like this underway but 
the idea, you know, around Coleman of effects is that there's, there's the potential for an interaction between, you know, different conditions and projects, you know, either from what's existing or what could happen in the future that might have negative consequence. And we have certainly seen, even in the last few weeks, that the west coast of the island is an absolute hotbed for potential activity, whether it's the expansion of the uh, salmon hatchery, uh, new logging plans, um, and of course the, the recently, I don't know, exposed uh, liberal plan for the uh, energy super basin. Um, and what I find, you know, amusing, sad, I, I don't know how to describe it, but this EIS by GH2 does have reference to cumulative effects in it. And basically, they say that the risk of uh, those negative consequences are quite low, with one major exception that they make note of. And that, uh, that note, that exception, is in the circumstance where another company comes in and tries to establish another hydrogen plant or wind turbine site in proximity or in a space that may uh, overlap with um, the locations where WGH2 is planning to operate. So there are no other potential cumulative effects unless a competitor mm. happens to move into the neighborhood. So I, I found that actually quite extraordinary. You think of... Um weather formations that we've seen for the first time in uh, in our part of the world recently. You think of the atmospheric storm, which are these big um, uh, rain, uh, moisture uh, weather patterns that kind of stall over a certain area and drop a lot of rain rather than, um, than move off. And you think of the Angwell Mountains in the Cadre Valley where, the, where they're going to be um, building, putting a lot of these wind turbines. You think of the road construction and the cutting of trees and and what happens with um with uh, a large uh rainfall and the water you know running downhill as it always does into the grand codway uh river or some some other important um uh water body that's the thing about climate change becomes unpredictable but i i get the sense that they don't really contemplate those those things they just assume that things will go according to pattern without a lot of planning for for the unexpected well i think you're absolutely right and and this is the new reality that we're we're talking about now i mean i don't re recall a time in my lifetime where i had to understand what a polar vortex was or a heat dome or, or what you're talking about with rainfall which is the atmospheric rivers i've, I've never heard those those types of descriptions of weather patterns before um and i think you know, it's it's not just rose-colored glasses that they're coming at with this, but they are just deliberately trying to overlook some of the realities that we we live with, um, and and we you know face some of this when they when they did a uh, community consultation in the end of uh, April, I believe, out here uh, on the peninsula. You know, and their experts were trying to explain to us how you know the the rain cycle works and how our water tables, you know, replenish. And it's the reality is, look, if you are going to be cutting channels across the landscape um, and stripping bare the, the trees, the grasses, the, you know, overburden, whatever, I mean, you are changing the flow of water. And if we're looking at um, the huge amounts that we've started to see, 
um, that doesn't resolve itself. You know, a couple of years after you finish this, this project, the, the water is going to find its own way. You are creating artificial and new channels for it to, to travel along. And that is absolutely going to have an impact. It's going to lead to erosion. It's going to lead to, um, you know, deposits in our water supplies that I don't think that we can even consider. And that's without going back to your 22 uh, million pounds of uh, emulsive explosives. Now, Patrick, uh, there are people out there listening that are um, thinking about making their own, um, putting in their own submission um, by October the 11th. So um, I think it's important that we not discourage people from doing it, even though it's it's overwhelming and uh, someone might not have time to read 4,000 pages. But people will have their own specific concerns if they're into the lobster fishery, if they're an outfitter. Um, so what advice can we give people uh, to, I guess the bottom line is make sure you have your say and it's not, doesn't have to be fancy. It's an email to the minister. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the um, design, part of the equation by GH2 World Energy and, and perhaps the provincial government is to make it seem um, that it's just too much um, and that our voices don't matter. And that's, that's where we absolutely need to, to step up. Um, you know, this isn't the time to sit on the fence. This isn't the time to, you know, be apathetic about things. Um, this will touch everyone in, in some way, shape or form. And, you know, as much as my focus has been the peninsula, um, I certainly have a lot of sympathy for the folks in Stephenville who, um, you know, they're rushing to put wind turbines up here. They're rushing to put a hydrogen ammonia plant in your backyard. Um, you know, and for the folks in Cadroy, I mean, beautiful country and it's all at risk. So you're absolutely right. Uh, a simple, you know, email to say, you know what, I've got concerns. Um, I think we need more time because that to me is, is the central factor in all of this. It's just way, way, way too quick. And we've, we've learned this with Muskrat Falls. Um, and that's what, you know, I find really disappointing is that, you know, this government They've, they've seen that lesson play out. Um, there was no due diligence done. It was a big rush and we know exactly where it got us and what we're continuing to live with. So, you know, the people in this province, whether you're on the peninsula or not, um, just like Muskrat Falls, if things go wrong, we're the ones that are gonna be on the hook to pick up that debt. So I definitely would encourage anyone um, to be part of the process, to put your questions out there, to put your concerns out there, write a short um, email just to let them know. If you need help with that, there's plenty of folks to reach out to that are more than happy to support you. Um, I know the Environmental Transparency Committee is, is you know, always available. Um, if you need help crafting that email, if you need to know an address for the minister, where to send it to, you know, those are folks that they can point you to. We've got a, a much bigger and growing network than that. So there's probably dozens of other people that if you're not comfortable doing this on your own, if you're if you're finding it just too hard to wrap your head around it, talk to these folks, ask for some help, um, and and let's be heard because right now that is the piece that unfortunately government and GH2 is counting on is our silence, uh -huh. um, and the, and they are doing everything they can to you know deny opposition, to deny um, you know people's concerns. We just have to keep push, pushing back on that. And for our friends in Stephenville, many there's a, lar a large body of opinion in Stephenville that thinks that this is a good thing. But 
Um, environment has a very broad definition, and it includes the social uh, and lived environment also. And um, I don't know where uh, these workers will come from. It's if it's a hundred people or or more uh, who will be involved in the uh, ammonia plant there. Where will they live? What will they do to the uh, price of housing in Stephenville? Housing is already at a shortage. What will they do to rents? You know, so uh, sometimes there are unintended consequences that, um, you know, all that uh, glitters is not necessarily well, gold at the end of well, the day. We know the answer to those questions already, Glenn. And and we've seen it when Rockstad and Emra came through here with their uh, uh, setting up the lines project. We had people that were renting out rooms in their homes at, at you know, crazy rental rates. And when those folks moved on, that artificial inflation remained. Mm-hmm. So you're you're absolutely right. I mean, when you talk about um, how great this job is going to be for, or how great this project is going to be for jobs, um, we're hearing from the the outfitters in in Codroy, You know how devastating it's going to be to their industry. Well, you know that's that's what about ten outfitters uh, spread over you know twenty two um, allotments of land. I haven't heard a word about the businesses, the tourism, anything on the peninsula. You know, mm-hmm. we've got we've got more than 10 people doing business on this peninsula, I can assure you that. And I know that the folks not doing business are, are going into town on the daily uh, to do work there. Mm-hmm. So it will have an impact. Absolutely. You've, you've got businesses and, and particularly the tourism out here that's really struggled through COVID. Um, and folks have just, you know, fought tooth and nail to stay viable. And now they're starting to come back and we are going to be overwhelmed with, with, you know, work and trucks and, you know, parts being transported and the roads are going to be tied up. Um, and those businesses are going to be right back where they were in the middle of COVID, mm-hmm. you know, and is there anyone there to, you know, bemoan that? You know, it doesn't seem like it because as far as I can tell, the 4,600 people on the peninsula pretty much don't exist in discussions. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I find that an unbelievable and, and sad oversight. Mm-hmm. Now, Patrick, uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is your uh, research into the staff strength at the Department of the Environment, which is the department that will have to review this submission, the comments, et cetera. And according to what you found, there are fewer people working there today than there were years ago, even though we have all these, uh, all this activity going on, all these environmental impact uh, statements, not only this one, what have you found? Well, it was, it was something that had been suggested to me um, in a, in a discussion that was ongoing. Um, And, I think someone was under the the assumption that, you know, 10, 15 years ago that the environmental um, department was a lot more robust. Um, And so that sort of stuck with me a little bit. So I just, I wanted to see if that, um, you know, bit of intuition was correct. And I went and dug up some of their annual reports, uh, which gave a pretty good breakdown on budgets and staffing. And it turned out to be exactly the case. So I went back, you know, just a decade ago when they had, I believe it was about 463 people in that department. Um, and at that time, I think about 100 and, 
130 of them or so were actually uh, located on the West Coast. You fast forward 10 years later to you know, 2021, 2022, um, and that entire department has been chopped down to about 160 individuals. I don't know how many of them are actually um, at work on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And the number of uh, staff that are directly tasked with environmental assessment uh, for the entire province is 10 people. Oh, wow. So, you know, when I, when again, we look at the number of, you know, mining operations, um, you know, the hydrogen projects, um, you know, things again, like the, the wood cutting and the, and the hatchery, I can't imagine how 10 people can possibly keep up with this volume and, and do a good job of it. Um, again, like us, they've, they've got to be absolutely overwhelmed. We were speaking with Patrick Park Tye. October 11th is the deadline for written comments and nothing fancy. An email to the minister will do just fine. Have your say. And that's it for the program. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And introducing our new website, Mi'kmaqMatters.com. The Mi'kmaq Matters team is producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Janes, and researcher Hilary McGinnis. I'm Glenn Wheeler. I'm Sonokama. Mi'kmaq Matters.